Hello, welcome to This Week in the Atlantic Coast Conference, the podcast for allsportsdiscussion.com. This is Jeff, one of your podcast co-hosts, and you can follow me on Twitter at TalkinACCSports. The podcast moderator is Matthew, and you can follow him at HokieSmash underscore ASD. I'm going to turn it over to Matthew now as he introduces our guest for the podcast. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, We have a special guest on the podcast tonight. Joining us this week is national college football blogger Matt Zemek, who is also a member of our team at allsportsdiscussion.com. He blogs on occasion at our site, and he's the editor of Trojans Wire, which is the USA Today Gannett Corporation's University of Southern California Athletics website. It is... uh, is a really well done publication again well done publication that twitter account is at trojans wire at t-r-o-j-a-n-s-w-i-r-e matt zemek's twitter account is at matt zemek that's at m-a-t-t-z-e-m-e-k again that's at matt zemek at M-A-T-T-Z-E-M-E-K. And Jeff, maybe you want to DM Matt here on Twitter and see if you can help him help him log on because I don't see him I don't see him here yet. And I can just run through some things here for ACC ACC basketball. We're having a having some technical difficulties here tonight on the show. And I want to I just wanted to run through a couple of things here regarding ACC basketball. Um, it was kind of, it was kind of a heck of a it was a pretty good pretty good good week for the most part for the con- for the conference. I mean, if you go through some of the games that happened here this weekend this pa- this past week this past weekend, um, and I should say this past week, uh, I will say here that I was disappointed, of course, to see Notre Dame lose to Georgia. I think that that's that's not a good that's not a good thing for the Irish, and they're clearly not in that picture for the NCAA tournament. I know Jeff had quite a few words to say about that. Matt Zemek, are you there with us, friend? I can hear you. We can hear you. We have you, Matt. We are happy you are here, sir. And I gave a long introduction to you earlier. I think you're in good shape and we're 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 just extremely 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 thrilled to have you have you here on the podcast matt and it's wonderful that you're you spend the you know part of your holiday season with us so first matt tell us about yourself the floor is your (laughs) well you know i've just been at the this college sports writing thing for a couple decades and you know the all sports discussion podcast right before christmas it's one of the favorite moments of my year and uh, it's just a it's a pleasure it's an honor and it's a privilege to be on with you guys we're re- we're really happy you're here with this mute yourself yeah there you go mute yourself when you're not speaking here thank you so we're getting some interference thank you so much matt um which uh jeff we're gonna just li- Turn the questioning over to you now, Jeff. The floor. All right. Thank you, Matthew. 
All right, Matt, let's, uh, you know, get into a little bit of a review of ACC football. Um, <clears throat> which ACC football team was the most disappointing team in 2022? And which ACC team was the most impressive in 2022? And we still have the bowl season to go to, but we're talking about regular season here. So, Jeff, uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the number one answer has to be Miami under Mario Cristobal. And it's not because uh, we should have expected Miami to be absolutely fantastic and the U should have been fully back in year one. Like, you know, we see coaches in, in first years at programs have their share of struggles. And he wasn't supposed to figure everything out but it wasn't supposed to regress like this. You know, that that's, that's for sure. And we can point to certain key injuries like Restrepo was, you know, the, the, the receiver that Tyler Van Dyke really needed. And, and so that, you know, turned out to be a bigger injury than a lot of people thought, but still like one injury to one receiver really shouldn't destroy an offense the way the Restrepo injury uh, destroyed Miami. Uh, it really should have been better. And, you know, one of the things that I, learned when talking to uh, Miami football people. One of them uh, helps produce my Trojans Wire podcast. So I was able to, you know, just pick his brain, you know, sit and ask him, you know, hey, what's going on down there uh, during the season? And one of the things he said is that the offense last year under offensive coordinator Rhett Lashley uh, really fit Tyler Van Dyke's skill set. And the, the offense that Josh Gaddis uh, installed this season under Crystal Ball uh, did not fit Tyler Van Dyke's skill set. So that brings up the obvious point. Why would you change an offense that fits your quarterback's skill set? Why, why wouldn't you just stick with that structure? And it points to a, a, a basic part of coaching, which is you take the talent you have, you take the skill base that you have, and you fit your scheme to match the skill set. You don't say, well, here's our scheme. This is what we're going to do. And you, Tyler Van Dyke, you need to learn a new offense, new system, new new nuances and particularities. No, uh, good coaches uh, adjust their scheme to fit the player. And it's very clear on offense that Mario Cristobal didn't do that. And this leads to a bigger discussion about Mario Cristobal. I mean, he's not a bad coach. Let's be clear. Like he, he won the Rose Bowl at Oregon. But let's also realize that, you know, he's the guy who had Justin Herbert throwing screens and checkdowns uh, when he when he was when Herbert was at Oregon. You know, we did not see the, the quarterback who can sling the ball down the field, can make so many great plays in the NFL with the Chargers. Uh, we did not get to see that guy at Oregon. And Anthony Brown, you know, has gotten some work for the Ravens. And, uh, you know, has played better uh, than a lot of people even thought he would. A lot of people didn't even think he'd even stick on an NFL roster. Uh, and I was one of them. And, you know, he was not very good at Oregon a year ago in 2021. Uh, he got embarrassed by Utah a couple of times uh, late in the Pac-12 season. So it brings up a pattern. Like, this is not just Justin Herbert. This is a regular thing where Mario Cristobal uh, does not – enable quarterbacks to fully develop under his watch. So that is that is a real problem going forward for Miami. And it's a real problem for Mario Cristobal because as, as good a job he, as he did at Oregon, he really needs to do some soul searching. He needs to look in the mirror and realize, hey, 
I, I am coaching these very talented quarterbacks, and not only am I not getting the most out of them, I'm actually causing them to regress because Tyler Van Dyke definitely did regress at Miami. Uh, you know, when a coach steps in, like he's supposed to get out of the way and make sure that a good thing continues to be good. I mean, and I, ideally that quarterback will improve, but at the very least, just don't screw it up. Don't mess it up. At least make sure that if you inherit a, a quarterback with a lot of talent, you enable him to just keep doing the good things that he's been doing. But Cristobal did not do that. So obviously Miami uh, is, a, is the huge disappointment of the ACC, but it's, it's more about Tyler Van Dyke and other players Cristobal inherited. You know, it's, it's not, it wasn't so much the failure to bring in uh, re recruits or, or prospects in the transfer portal, I mean, that's what Lincoln Riley did at USC, but you can't expect every coach to, to do that in year one. Uh, you know, Lincoln Riley's uh, transfer overhaul was a pretty unique thing on a very large scale. It's not as though just anyone can pull it off, and it's not as though just any program can pull it off. I mean, USC does have the resources and the stature to attract uh, players that, that other programs don't. And so we shouldn't – I'm not hold, trying to say that Mario Cristobal should have done what Lincoln Riley did. But, and, and this is where Lincoln Riley does separate himself from the crowd, like Lincoln Riley's a gifted play caller, he's a gifted schemer. Whatever talent Lincoln Riley has, he's going to provide an offense, both a system and in terms of situationally specific play calls that are going to enable a quarterback, a receiver, a running back to thrive. Mario Cristobal definitely does not do that. So, like, I'm not going to get on him for failing to bring in all the guys that he needed in year one and let's remember he came to miami in the middle of december so we had already had a few weeks of off-season movement and you know in terms of having a head start on recruiting crystal ball didn't really have that you, you know the way that a coach would if he comes aboard at the end of november first week of december crystal ball came in, in the third week of december so again i'm not hitting him for recruiting but you just can't be a guy who whose offensive system continues to repress and suffocate talented quarterbacks, preventing them from producing. That is just a major red alarm problem uh, that Mario Cristobal has to address. And if he does not address it, his tenure at Miami will not uh, meet the hype and the expectations uh, that it was greeted with. Now, that having been said about Cristobal, we can't mention big ACC disappointments without mentioning Tony Elliott at Virginia. Like I am shocked. I am shocked at how bad this was. I'm not shocked that like the first year was a bumpy ride, but a lot like Cristobal, like he took Brennan Armstrong and this guy, you know, po posted video game numbers uh, a year ago. And I thought he was like, going to be in the Heisman mix. Not, not, you know, a Heisman finalist necessarily, but certainly like one of the top 10 vote getters in the Heisman race, maybe like a number eight, number nine vote getter, you know, a guy who had a chance uh, to make the Heisman ceremony this year. And instead is just a disaster, an absolute disaster. And so, you know, what, what did Tony Elliott do that uh, caused this Virginia offense to unravel? And I know, and uh, Hey, I, I'm at Trojans wire. So I know that, you know, having Bobby Haskins, at USC on the offensive line, that was really important for the Trojans. So Virginia not having Bobby Haskins, and they lost another offensive lineman uh, in the portal as well. Yeah, those offensive line uh, changes certainly hurt, but they should not have resulted in just a total night and day difference 
you know, going from a great statistical season in 2021 to this absolute nightmare uh, in 2022. And so Tony Elliott, like what the heck was happening? And that brings up a, a point with, that, with another ACC angle. And that is that, you know, with DJ Uyangalale, you know, a, a, continuing to struggle in 2022. And of course, now he's out the door, leaving Clemson in the transfer portal and the, the hot rumors that he might uh, move out here at uh, the PAC 12 and UCLA. We'll, we'll see what happens, but you know, with uh, Clemson's passing game failing to hit the mark once again, this season, um, maybe, maybe Tony Elliott needs to come, just come back to Clemson and maybe Jeff Scott, uh, you know, fired it at USF. Maybe he needs to come back to Clemson and maybe those guys are just not cut out to be head coaches. You know, Jeff Scott failing at, South Florida, Tony Elliott face planning in year one. You know, maybe it was just maybe they're just cut out to be uh, assistants under Dabo. Uh, maybe just the uh, Dabo needs to bring the band back together if he wants to get uh, his offense back in order. Um, it's it's really not a good commentary on Dabo's coaching tree, and it speaks to you know the, just uh, the, the the problems that Clemson has had in its offense the past two years. Like, oh, maybe Tony Elliott wasn't as dynamic a, a coach as we thought, you know, and maybe it was just the players who were getting it done. Maybe this was just about Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence, just being amazing, instinctive quarterbacks and football players uh, more than uh, any other offensive coach. So lots of interesting ripples through the world of the ACC when we look at uh, uh, disappointments. And so, you know, it's obviously Miami one, but you have to mention Virginia uh, at two, um, and, you know, Boston College, I think, also has to rate as a mention here. Um, but in, in that case, boy, you know, Boston College has been savaged by injuries. And, and, and you know, you could say that about other programs, but I don't think uh, over the last two seasons, I don't think any program has been hit worse by the injury bug than Boston College. And so, like, I'm personally of the view that Jeff Halfley, you know, he obviously has to do better, but he, there's only so much you can say to criticize him when, you know, key, guys at key positions are dropping like flies. He still had that team competing, uh, especially that win over North Carolina State uh, when Boston College was a huge underdog and yet won that game in the final moments. I mean, that tells me that players still believe in Jeff Halfley. Obviously, he needs to, to get the, the recruits that will build the depth that will enable him to win in Chestnut Hill, but I certainly don't think it's time to give up on him. Not not with the limitations that that he's faced. So uh, that that's I think a pretty complete survey of uh, of major disappointments in the ACC this season. All right, Matt, and, and who did you have as the um, most impressive team? Well, so Florida State looked the best, no doubt, uh, at the end of the season. And the, the way Jordan Travis matured as a quarterback over the course of the season, like his performance against Florida was amazing. And uh, I know we could say that it's Florida and Florida just got bombed by Oregon State in the Vegas Bowl. But still, like that was a rivalry game and Florida brought energy. Florida brought passion. Like the way Florida played in that game the Gators, you know, probably would have been a lot better than six and six uh, if they played at that level the whole season. And Jordan Travis responded to that, and he was just a man among boys. He was the best player on the field, and he put his team on his back and said, "I'm not losing this." And so his maturation, his growth, at, not just as a player, but as a leader, 
that was pretty eye popping. I mean, you could see it, you could feel it, you can sense it. Like you, you know that like that's what a great quarterback looks like. That's what a great college quarterback uh, does. Uh, that that's how he carries himself. Um, so you know the work that Mike Norvell has done with Jordan Travis and with the rest of the team. Like you can sense that the culture is getting better uh, in Tallahassee. Uh, now you could say that the ACC, you know, didn't have a great season. You know, the ACC has not been as strong or as deep as it's been in previous years. You know, with North Carolina winning the Coastal, uh, and, and you know the other teams failing, Miami failing, Virginia failing. You know, Pitt having a, a so-so season. You know, not great. Um, you could say that the ACC was right for the picking, and that's why Florida State really was the the second best team in the conference. And 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 it does bear some mention heading into 2023 that, you know, Florida state's rise might've been more the product of what's happening elsewhere in the ACC. But, but when you just look at what Florida state did, and when you look at the journey that Florida state made, uh, when you realize, you know, the growth over the course of the full season. And when you also realize that, you know, those three losses in the middle of the season to wake forest, NC state Clemson, how was the team going to respond to that? Well, the response could not have been better in November, in the final leg of the season. So, you know, I, I, I think that this progress at Florida State is going to stick. Like, I don't think you're going to see a, a notable regression next year. Like, I think Norvell now has Florida State uh, definitely being like an 8-9 win team on a, on a pretty consistent basis. And now the question is if he can get to 10 or 11 wins uh, in the coming years. But I think you're going to see Florida State – not having too much of a problem over the next several years winning nine games per year. And so that, while it's not, you know, leading the Seminoles all the way back uh, to where they once were under Bobby Bowden and for for a brief time under Jimbo Fisher, um, it certainly lifts them from that middle and muddled level of mediocrity uh, that the program had had a hard time escaping. It really does seem as though Florida State's done with that that is in the rearview mirror, and that is a pretty significant accomplishment. Like Mike Norvell accomplished something very important this season. Like he definitely raised the bar closer to the expected standard, not all the way to it, but closer to it at Florida State. And now this program can pursue getting back to the next step up the ladder, and that is being great. That's winning the division, you know, winning the Atlantic. Uh, and, and, and well, now that the ACC is abolishing divisions, you know, making the ACC championship game, like Florida state should now be able to say entering the 2023 season, Hey, we should be in the ACC championship game without question, you know, not North Carolina, not Virginia, not Miami. It, it should be us. This is our time. You know, we, we should be playing Clemson, uh, a, a few times in the next, uh, few years, uh, for the ACC championship in the new division-free setup uh, that ACC football is going to have. So Florida State lifted itself from from like a, a, a jumbled, middle, mushy center uh, in the ACC to the upper tier, and now it's time to set standards higher, uh, as people expect in Tallahassee. All right, good stuff there, Matt, on on – Looking back on the most disappointing and impressive teams in the ACC in 2022, uh, looking back on on 2022 again, who was your ACC Coach of the Year? So it has to be Mike Elko of Duke. 
I mean, I you you could you could make cases for for some others, you know, for Mac Brown uh, and, and getting uh, North Carolina uh, to the the Coastal Championship, the ACC title game, and and you could you know mention uh, Norvell as well. But uh, ultimately, it really has to be Mike Elko. Like no no one thought Duke was going to have this level of success. You know, being multiple games over five hundred, uh, and and you know. Let's let's remember that Duke led North Carolina very late in that rivalry game, and it took something special from Drake May uh, to deny D- Duke the win. I mean, if Duke wins that game, you're looking at Duke being in the ACC championship game. I mean, so Duke came very close to making the ACC championship game this year. And so, like, you could say, oh, the ACC was down, Miami had a bad year, Virginia had a bad year. Pitt was, you know, okay, but not fantastic. Yeah, you know, none of those things matter. Duke coming close to the ACC championship game in any season is an incredible coaching job. But Elko doing this, you know, after, you know, coming in to clean up the 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 mess that, you know, an aging, uh, you know, not fully healthy David Cutcliffe left behind. You know, he he lost his energy, ran out of gas. Uh, you know, it was time for a change in Durham. Uh, for Elko to come in and do what he did uh, this year, it's an absolutely spectacular coaching job. And I, I don't think anyone can seriously question that he should be ACC Coach of the Year. All right. Very good, Matt. Uh, as we move towards 2023, um, you know, we've, we've seen some coaching turnover uh, in the ACC. Uh, Jeff Collins is out. Uh, Brent Key is in at Georgia Tech. Uh, Scott Satterfield out at Louisville. Uh, they get Brom from Purdue, the 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 you know the former player and coach there. Um, who, who do we have on the ACC's coaching hot seat going into next season? Earlier, Jeff, about how Jeff Halfley, I think, needs more time and deserves more time at Boston College because of the injuries. But that having been said. If you look at the coaches in the conference, like he, he is going to get more scrutiny at his job than just about anyone else. Uh, I think Tony, Tony Elliott being the other. Like the, I think you look at those two coaches in 2023, and people are going to say, "Well, hey, if this thing doesn't get better, you know, what are we doing here? And 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 what what's our future? And what's the long term plan?" So I think that Halfley and Elliott. Like there's, they're the two guys most under the gun, but I would, I would say in terms of like who deserves to be on the hot seat, Elliot more than Halfley, because even though it's just Elliot's second year, like year one was a disaster. And, you know, th- there was a coach, uh, remember, uh, remember Ellis Johnson at Southern Miss? Uh, I know it's not the ACC, but like he was 0 and 12 uh, in year one. Boom. That's it. Done. Like you, you, you just can't go forward if, if year one is just a total, uh, train wreck. I mean, I know that, you know, generally just about any coach should get a second year unless, you know, marred by scandal or something off the field. But there's an occasion every once in a while, like in the NFL, Nathaniel Hackett with the Denver Broncos, like he should have been fired after game one, uh, week one of the NFL season when he, you know, kicked a 64 yard field goal instead of having Russell Wilson try to get a first down on fourth and five against the Seahawks. Like, like, okay, you're an incompetent bozo. You need to be fired. You're not going to be leading our NFL team with all the the billions of dollars invested in this business. And so it's similar in college football. Like if you prove yourself to be completely incompetent at your job, you know, I don't care if there's no off-field scandal. 
like we're we're paying you a lot of money. You can't just shipwreck our program and like you don't automatically get two full years on the job. So like if Virginia totally face plants, just absolutely totally face plants in the first month, six weeks uh, of next season, like I don't think Tony Elliott should feel safe. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe he'll get a third year no matter what. I don't, I don't, I'm, I don't know the internal politics in Charlottesville uh, well enough to know that. But if he, if Tony Elliott just completely steps on a rake in the first several weeks of next season, like he should not be given a year three. And I don't know if he should even last the full season. I mean, if it's just, if it's as bad or, or almost as bad, like if it's really close uh, to what we saw in 2021, like y- you just can't keep that guy in charge of a, of a power five conference program. You simply can't. So, th- so that's where the focus should be. And uh, Jeff, I want to congratulate you on escaping the Jeff Collins era. I mean, I know that Brent key uh, certainly doesn't, uh, isn't, doesn't rate as a sexy replacement the way w- Willie Fritz would have. Uh, but still the Jeff Collins era, the national nightmare on the flats is over. So congratulations to you. I, I mean, uh, compared to, to Jeff Collins, I mean, it, Brett Key is Nick Saban. <laughs> so <laughs> anything, anything was an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see how much of an upgrade in 2023. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. There was a lot of discussion at Georgia tech with, with Fritz and, and Chadwell, um, Brett Key ended up getting the job, and we'll see how he how he does. Um, uh, you know, I, I think he he did enough uh, through the course of the second half of the year to say, hey, this this guy, you know, has some coaching ability. Um, but still, that's only a part, uh, you know, uh, part time. Uh, what he did, he didn't have any previous head coaching experience. We'll see uh, how he does. But uh, thankfully, Jeff Collins is no longer the coach at Georgia Tech. <laughs> Praise oh. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Talking about a, a, you were mentioning talking about a coach running a coach running a program into the ground. Uh, yeah, he should have been fired eighteen months into his tenure. All right, Matt. Let's look at the ACC bowl games, and we're taking a look at the FCS title game as well. Um, one bowl game is already under the belt. Um, ACC one and zero. I know these are you know with all the opt outs and and um, player movement, roster movement. We had two coaches uh, in this game, you know, that had interim status. But still, uh, you know, uh, let me put you on mute there for a second, Matt. You know, you can still build up some some momentum going into next season. Uh, you know, the, the wins and losses – still you know get talked about as an indictment fair or not of a conference and louisville got the acc off to a good start dion branch did a fantastic job uh coming as an interim coach um so acc 1-0 louisville finishing with an eight win season uh you know not too bad and they got rid of the coach they didn't want with scott satterfield so uh matt let's run through the ACC bowl season. We'll call this our lightning round and you pick, pick the winner of that game. So the ACC's next bowl game is Wake Forest versus Missouri in the Gasparilla bowl on December 23rd. Wake Forest in that game. If you're looking at 
season. You wouldn't say that Missouri is that team. You wouldn't say that Missouri has the offensive weapons uh, or consistency to beat Wake Forest. So I really like that matchup for the Demon Deacons. All right, very good. Uh, you were breaking up just a little bit there at the beginning of that comment, but we got your Wake Forest pick. Uh, on Wednesday, December 28th, we got Duke and UCF. Intriguing game there. It is, and, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to get from a Gus Malzahn team. I mean, Gus Malzahn, you know, he, he he's the guy who would beat Nick Saban twice, and then, you know, he'd stumble uh, against Kentucky or, you know, another uh, – uh, SEC team that, you know, he figured to beat at Auburn. So, you know, he's all over the place. Uh, and I, you know, with Mike Elko doing such a great job and having a month to prepare for this game. And, you know, you, let's also note that UCF lost to Navy. Uh, and this is not a good Navy team. Ken Niumatololo, you know, uh, was fired, which was a real surprise to me. Like Navy firing Niumatololo did not expect that on my 2022 bingo card. Um, so, you know, with, I think that Duke is, is going to show out. I think Duke's going to have a great plan. I think Duke's going to look really sharp. I mean, bowl games, teams often, you know, either play great or they, or they play total clunkers and there's not much in between. I think the likelihood of Duke playing great as opposed to serving up a clunker is pretty good. So I like Duke there. All right. And that was in the military bowl. Uh, then we have, um, that same day, the holiday bowl. Um, North Carolina versus Oregon this is the first time with an ACC tie-in. And um, I think this is a terrible matchup for North Carolina. I got to be honest uh, here, Matt. Totally agree. And, you know, Bo Nix is coming back to Oregon next year. That news broke uh, before this podcast uh, began. So, you know, so, you know, Bo Nix and he's going to be healthy. You know, he's had a month off. You know, he, he suffered an injury late in the season. Uh, and, you know, you guys know as well as I do that when North Carolina went up against better teams late in the season and, and better, uh, you know, teams with, that had really just more weapons, more toughness, more of everything, uh, North Carolina State, Clemson, you know, the Tar Heels got exposed. Like they were good against the lower and middle tiers of the ACC, but not against the top tier. And so that, that does spell a, a really long, rough night. Uh, against Oregon. Uh, notable thing about this Holiday Bowl, it's the first Holiday Bowl since 2019. You know, the, the, the 2020 game didn't get played because of the pandemic. And then, of course, North Carolina State was raring to go, ready to play last year. And UCLA uh, basically opted out, um, you know, kind of strung along everybody, bothered to show up uh, at like the pre-bowl functions, but then wasn't willing to go ahead and play the game which was a real letdown for all the NC State fans who traveled to San Diego hoping for some uh, holiday football. So it's the first Holiday Bowl in three years. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, Drake May and Bo Nix will put on a show and you're going to have a, a pile of points, but it's probably not going to end well for North Carolina. I definitely agree with you there. All right, we move on to uh, the Pinstripe Bowl, December 29th. And uh, this could be a good matchup for uh, Syracuse playing uh, near their home versus Minnesota. Yeah, so, you know, Dino Babers, I mean, it, it, it was really confusing that, you know, Syracuse starts 6-0 and and then almost, almost lost its next six games to finish 6-6. Six and six. 
Uh, we, it was a tale of two seasons for Syracuse, and you know it, the team never recovered from the Clemson game. I mean that that game just had a some sometimes a game has an incredibly bad domino effect on a team season. Uh, like there's a moment that a team never really recovers from, and of course that the bad call on the on the roughing uh, you know against Syracuse, which get, you know kept that Clemson drive alive and then facilitated the Tigers comeback. Yeah, Syracuse just didn't recover from that. You know, you had Notre Dame the next week uh, coming off that Syracuse loss and Notre Dame dump trucked Syracuse. That was a physical mismatch. And, and we, we basically saw Syracuse just get run over, uh, you know, physically overwhelmed by the teams on the second half of that schedule. You know, Florida State also went into the dome up there in, in, in uh, New York State and wiped away Syracuse. So, you know, now, so Syracuse was playing some really good teams. Uh, that's part of it. But, you know, Syracuse also had some bad performances against Pitt uh, and, and just never really regained what it had in the first half of the season. So now you come to a bowl game. And so which version of, of Syracuse are we going to see? Are we going to see the version from the first half of the season or the version from the second half of the season? Uh, I don't know. I don't have a really good... Uh, feel for this game, uh, but I do know that Minnesota really struggles to score. You know, Minnesota had so many chances to win the Big Ten West in a down year when uh, you know uh, Iowa struggled, and uh, uh, of course Wisconsin struggled. Paul Chris got fired. Graham Mertz basically uh, ruined two coaching careers. You know, he got Paul Chris fired, and then Jim Leonard, who replaced Christ, you know, he was auditioning for the permanent head coaching job. Mertz played poorly enough that the Wisconsin AD didn't want to make Leonard the permanent guy, and he went to Luke Fickle. So Mertz was Mertz was the ultimate coach killer uh, among quarterbacks in college football this season. He got two two crossed off the list. Um, so Minnesota could not win a division in which Wisconsin had a bad year. So that's a real missed opportunity for Minnesota, and it tells me that at, for all of Syracuse's struggles, and if the Orange play a moderately good game, not, not a brilliant game, but a moderately good game. And of course it's in the Bronx. So you figure they're going to have a fan advantage for that. I, I think Syracuse narrowly, but really this is not a bowl game. You should be betting money on if, if you are inclined to bet, like if you, if you're putting serious cash on a Syracuse, Minnesota bowl game, you, you need some help. You, you need some help right now. Uh, and you, you need to, you know, put down your phone and, and make sure you don't click, uh, you know, process bet uh, on your app. So I, I would say Syracuse narrowly, but I certainly do not have much of any confidence making that pick. All right. And we're looking at on December 29th, the Cheez-It Bowl, Orlando, Florida. And uh, this is Florida State versus Oklahoma. Love this matchup for the Knowles. Uh I feel like this this could turn this could get really ugly for the Sooners and uh, like you were talking about bringing back uh, Clemson coaches. Hey, there's a spot on the defensive coordinator side for Brent Venables as he's staring at a losing season at Oklahoma. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I am so happy you brought up uh, brought up Ted Roof. Like <laughs> like he he is the defensive coordinator that ACC teams and ACC fan bases love to hate. You know whether he was at North Carolina State or or at other spots uh, uh, in the ACC. Like, he's the guy like, why is he on our staff? Why is he coaching us? Uh, 
you know, so, you know, Georgia Tech uh, also had the Ted Roof experience. So, um, yeah, I mean, that you look at, okay, Ted Roof is still gainfully employed by Brent Venables, and he's going up against Florida State, and Florida State's had a month to prepare. Yikes, yikes. Yeah, that 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 definitely is not going to end well for Oklahoma's defense. And, you know, Brent Venables, I mean, you think you would like to think that in time he's going to get things solved with the Oklahoma defense, but not this year. Like he he he's going to need the offseason. He's going to need the recruiting trail. He's going to need the transfer portal like an overhaul is needed. We're not talking about slight tweaks We need a major makeover for the Oklahoma defense. So yeah, that problem is not going to get resolved in a few weeks of bowl practice and preparation. Florida State's offense should be a steamroller in this game and the Knolls should win big. All right, we're moving on to the Duke Mayo Bowl in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Should be a good home field advantage for uh, North Carolina State in this one, but you know which Wolfpack team is going to show up? You know the one that de- defeated Texas Tech uh, looks good against North Carolina, or the one that inexplicably lost to Boston College, and and you know arguably the worst conference loss for a for upper tier ACC team of the season. And and Matthew blogged about that. We've got NC State, um, and that you know really strong defense versus uh, Maryland and one of the uh, Tungvaloa. Uh, brothers playing. Uh, so I love NC State in this game. One, because it's Mike Loxley on the other side going against Dave Doran. I mean, Mike Loxley has not really been able to get Maryland uh, to that next level. But the other part of this is that, you know, Tim Beck is gone at North Carolina State. And that, that should be great news because Tim Beck, you know, you ask Ohio State and Texas fans who had to deal with Tim Beck as an offensive coordinator. They did not like him. He was not very good for either of those uh, programs. So NC State is able to get rid of him uh, and make an upgrade at the position. So I think you're going to see a better NC State offensive game plan here. And, uh, you know, with with the defense that NC State has and the fact that this is a former ACC rivalry, I don't think NC State's going to have too much of a problem getting up for this game. And I know that, uh, you know, NC State wanted to get a New Year's Six Bowl. It's, it's, it's the goal that the program has been chasing for a long time. But if you're not going to play in a New Year's Six Bowl, well, hey, play close to home, play a former ACC team. Uh, you know, th- I think I think the motivation is going to be there for North Carolina State. But the other thing is, you don't have Tim Beck. I think that's a really, really big reason why the Wolfpack are going to take care of Maryland in the Duke's Mayo Bowl. All right, then we look at the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl on December 30th. Um, Pitt, who was playing much better at the end of the season, like you said, um, so-so year, uneven, but, um, you know, took Tennessee when they were peaking. Well, I wouldn't say peaking, but, you know, earlier in the season took Tennessee to overtime, played well towards the end of the season, struggled during the middle of the year, uh, playing a pretty good UCLA team. Uh, you know, so the main thing here was going to be, you know, is Dorian Thompson Robinson going to opt out? You know, UCLA's quarterback. I mean, you know, Keaton Slovis, uh, you know, he's uh, headed elsewhere uh, for Pitt. Uh, but, you know, was UCLA's quarterback going to, uh, you know, just say, hey, I'm gone. I'm going to the NFL. I have not seen any news about Dorian Thompson Robinson, uh, you know, opting out of this game. Uh, you know, and, let's, and he's played at UCLA under Chip Kelly for five years. So, he seems to want to go out uh, in this bowl game 
you know, and make a statement. So like, like that right there, that seems to be the whole key to the game. Now, maybe he'll change his mind in the coming weeks, but assuming that he doesn't, uh, you know, that should be UCLA's game to win uh, over Pittsburgh. All right, we're going to look at the Gator Bowl here. Um, ACC tie-in, you know, Notre Dame still part of that agreement. Um, playing uh, South Carolina in that game, two eight and four teams. What do you think about that one? Well, this is a this is a fascinating matchup. I mean, this game became a much better matchup in the final few weeks of the season because you saw Notre Dame giving USC a battle, and you saw South Carolina beating Tennessee and Clemson. In back-to-back weeks, and you saw Spencer Rattler finally playing great football after a season in which he largely, you know, was struggled. Uh, the South Carolina's offense was very mediocre uh, for the first ten games, but then Rattler just comes alive and torches both Tennessee and Clemson. I mean, he knocks two teams out of the college football playoff. I mean, Clemson probably gets in over Ohio State if it's a twelve and one ACC champion, but that lost to South Carolina prevented the Tigers from getting in. So Spencer Rattler showed everybody, he reminded everybody how much talent he has, and he's going up against Notre Dame's defense. So like that has become a, a sexy game. That is definitely one of the better bowl matchups on the slate. And you know, with South Carolina in the Gator Bowl, it's a good time for a little history with a program that you know is cur- wasn't in the ACC back, back then, but it's in the ACC now. The 1980 Gator Bowl, South Carolina against Pittsburgh. Now, first off, this this Gator Bowl uh, had a number three ranked team. So Pittsburgh was ranked number three, number three team in the nation played in the Gator Bowl back in 1980. But the other really big uh, and impressive fact about this game, the 1980 Gator Bowl, was that South Carolina, George Rogers, and Pittsburgh, Hugh Green, had the, the top two vote getters in the Heisman Trophy race that year. So the Gator Bowl had the number three team in the nation and the top two vote-getters in the Heisman Trophy race. It's a reminder of how big a deal the Gator Bowl used to be. The Gator Bowl in the late 70s and early 1980s usually had at least one top 10 team, often uh, like two top 15 teams, and you had either Keith Jackson or Al Michaels calling that game every year. You know, the 1978 Gator Bowl was the, the, the infamous Woody Hayes punch of the Clemson linebacker, and that got Woody Hayes fired. That was the last game Woody Hayes ever coached. That was a, a, a Keith Jackson, Frank Broyles, uh, ABC game, uh, and everyone was watching it. You know, two uh, high-profile programs. That was Danny Ford's really first Big win at Clemson, and it set the table. It set the stage for his national championship run a few years later in 1981. So a lot of history at the Gator Bowl, a lot of history involving teams from the state of South Carolina, whether it's the Gamecocks in this case or whether it's Clemson uh, going up against top national independents, often from the Midwest. Uh, so it's a really, really, really sexy matchup. Uh, but in terms of you know how this is going to uh, shake down, I mean, when you look at Spencer Rattler and the fact that he played so well in his last two games, I'm you know he's going to come into that game confident against Notre Dame, and Notre Dame obviously has a level of physical strength on the front lines that's going to be tough for South Carolina. But I think that if Spencer Rattler plays you know close to what we saw against Tennessee and against Clemson, like you put that up against Notre Dame's quarterback, Drew Pine, 
that is a big advantage for South Carolina, but it's only if, you know, the elite version of Spencer Rattler shows up. So I would say don't bet money on this game either. You know, don't be too invested in a pick, but I think right now my lean is to South Carolina. All right, and we'll f- finish our ACC bowl preview here with uh, Clemson playing Tennessee. No Miles Murphy in this game. No Jalen Hyatt. No DJ Uyunglele. No Hendon Hooker. Um, <laughs> tough to kind of break down this game when when uh, some of the most important players on both teams are opting out. But we'll we'll see. I think this is a a bigger game, and in, in some ways, for Clemson to build momentum for next season than even Tennessee. I would agree with that. I think that the way Clemson ended the the regular season makes this game that much more important, that Clemson needs the springboard uh, coming into next year. And and I think that the the decisive factor in this game is that, you know, Cade Klubnick, like the light went on for him, right, in the ACC championship game. Like, oh, that's why we got him. That's why Dabo Swinney brought him aboard. You know, that was the – elite prospect that Clemson hoped it was getting. It took, it, it took some time for him to understand, you know, the college game and adjust to the speed of the, of the sport and, and process everything that went into being a college quarterback at which, you know, like that's a natural progression for a freshman like that. That's, that's normal. No one should be too uh, uh, surprised by that. Uh, but some people might've thought, you know, early in the season, like, Oh, can, can he take over for DJ? I mean, I was certainly thinking that, you know, Clemson needed to explore that. Clemson needed to see what it had with Cade Klubnick uh, and, and see, you know, if it could get more out of its offense. Well, it didn't happen right away, but it did happen against North Carolina. And so after seeing Klubnick play the way he did, like he's obviously now the man at Clemson, but more than being the man, it looks like the man can really play. And so if we see anything close to what we saw against North Carolina, and realizing that Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt uh, are not playing in this game for the Vols, that's enough for me. Like I think you put that version, that that high quality version of of Cade Klubnick, together with Clemson's defense, you know, against a Tennessee team that it doesn't have its high end stars. That's enough for me to recommend Clemson beating Tennessee in the Orange Bowl. All right, and we want to get your thoughts, Matt on the FCS title game, North Dakota state going for their 10th FCS football title versus South Dakota state. So, uh, you know, South Dakota state had an easier time in the semifinals, but then North Dakota state did, but you know, we've seen this movie before, like we've seen North Dakota state have the tougher semifinal and people were thinking, Oh, you know, this means that the bison are in trouble. This means that they're swimming against the tide, but, like winners win, right? The cream rises to the top and we see the quality emerge when, when it really counts. It is just really, really hard to pick against North Dakota State in an FCS national championship game. I mean, that that is that is just the reality. And so let's also keep in mind that South Dakota State was, was playing a home game. I mean, I know the North Dakota State did as well in the semifinals, but when you get into a neutral site game, you know, you can't really lean on your crowd. And, and who steps up, who becomes the leader, who makes a winning play? North Dakota State is that program. North, North, North Dakota State is that team which manages to answer the bell time after time. So, you know, you could say that 
I'm just trying to, you know, make make the hosts happy here at the All Sports Discussion Podcast. But no, I mean, I, I really and sincerely think that when you get into a neutral site national title game, like that winning DNA, that winning culture, that really matters. I mean, it's mattered so much in the past. Why would you pick against that? Why would you uh, suddenly doubt North Dakota State in the national championship game? Very good, Matt. Thanks for that preview. I'm going to turn it over to Matthew now uh, for our last couple questions in the podcast. Matt, thanks again for joining us. We've always loved having you come on this show. Give us your thoughts on the college football playoff field. Well, you know, so I think that the, the, the four teams are correct. I also think that it was a pretty easy decision to make. Like, you know, you just couldn't have had Alabama in there, not with two losses and not without, you know, a real high-end win. Like, where was Alabama's really, really big win? So, obviously, lost to Tennessee, lost to LSU, didn't play Georgia, uh, you know, so, okay, where, where was the big win? Where, where was the really significant SEC win? And of course, Alabama won at Texas, and Texas was okay this year, but not great. You know, Texas did not have a special year. If, if Texas had gone 11-1, and one, you know, that would be different. But Texas did not because uh, Texas is coached by Sark. And if you're coached by Sark, you're going to lose at least four or five games pretty much every season. So Alabama just did not have a single really big shiny win, which, you know, if you lose twice, you need to have some really special wins on your resume. So you just couldn't – there was no room to put uh, Alabama into the mix. So you put Ohio State there at 12-1. and one, You know, and, of course, USC had its chance but blew it. Uh, USC at 11-2 and two, didn't really have an argument to make, uh, n- you know, not against Ohio State w- at 12-1. At and one. If, if USC had, had uh, beaten Utah that second time in Las Vegas and had been 12-1, and one, yeah, Trojans would be there, but they weren't. Clemson had its chance against South Carolina, also blew it. So I think the field just sorted itself out this year. That It was a year in which the field just made it pretty clear uh, which four teams needed to be selected. So now that we have the matchups, you know, we saw Ohio State once again play physically soft football against Michigan. I mean, you know, and we can say that, you know, one's an accident, two's a trend. So Ohio State's been punched in the mouth by Michigan and Jim Harbaugh two straight years. So they're going to go into Atlanta and play Kirby Smart in Georgia. Uh-oh. Like that, that, that does not stack up well for the Buckeyes. Uh, they strike me as a very soft team. Like the Michigan game seemed to be a proving ground moment. And the answer was pretty clear about just how tough the Buckeyes were. So I know they're going to be motivated to prove everybody wrong. And I also know that Georgia had some not very s- smooth rides this season. A, a 16-6 game against Kentucky, a 26-22 game against Missouri. But Georgia with a month off, you know, it's a lot like Nick Saban with a month off as well. You know, you get a, a month to really focus in. Okay, now we're playing in the playoff. This is the game we've pointed to all season long. We have four weeks to get healthy, four weeks to install our scheme, four weeks to break down film. I mean, does anyone trust Ohio State against Georgia in Atlanta? That's the other thing. It's in Atlanta. You know, this could have been the Fiesta Bowl. Let's just say for a moment this game was in Glendale, out, out here in the West where I am. You know, maybe you don't get a, a Georgia crowd advantage, but in Atlanta, that place is going to be roaring for the dogs. And of course, Ohio State, uh, you know, coming off that dispiriting Michigan game. I mean, 
I think that there's a chance for Ohio State to win this game, but I think Ohio State absolutely has to get on top of this game in the first quarter. You know, Ohio State needs like a 75-yard touchdown in the first quarter, needs to throw some early haymakers with its receivers, score a few early touchdowns, force Georgia to keep up in a track meet. Like that, that's the only way Ohio State wins. If this is a slugfest and Ohio State can't get its offense going, uh, then you know, the, then the Buckeyes are lost. They're, they're, they they can't win a street fight. It has to be a pretty game. It has to be a high scoring game. It has to be a flashy game where you have C.J. Stroud throwing the ball to all his fast, really talented receivers uh, in open space. And of course, Jackson Smith Najigba is not going to play in this game for Ohio State. So, like, it, it, there's only one path to victory for Ohio State. Georgia has many paths to victory. Could be with offense, could be with defense, could be with the passing game, uh, could be with the pass rush with Jalen Carter, uh, probably you know the best NFL draft prospect uh, in college football. Uh, so definitely think that Georgia wins the Peach Bowl over Ohio State. And you go to the Fiesta Bowl, and I think you have a much more intriguing game between TCU and Michigan. Now, I do think that uh, you know Michigan. I don't think I don't see Michigan as being on the same level as Georgia. Uh, the gap was pretty wide last year. Obviously, Georgia is not as good this year as it was last year. But you know, I saw that Michigan-Illinois game just before the Ohio State game, and Michigan had a problem completing simple forward passes, like eight-yard passes, ten-yard passes. It was a chore for Michigan to do anything on offense against uh, Illinois. And there were other games this season where Michigan's passing game just looked very clunky, very awkward, just not very efficient, not very explosive. And Michigan benefited from the Big Ten being down. Like the Big Ten, as I talked about earlier, you know, Wisconsin was bad. Iowa was not as good as it it, it was the year before. Uh, Minnesota couldn't score. You know, the Big Ten West was was definitely way down. And then Penn State is the third best team in the Big Ten, but Penn State lost to Michigan and Ohio State in its two most important games of the season. Um, that's your third best team in the conference. So, you know, Michigan did not impress me until the Ohio State game. But again, I think that was a commentary on what Ohio State didn't bring to the table as much as it was a commentary on how good Michigan is. And Michigan's really good, but I don't think Michigan belongs on the same plane as Georgia. At the very least, we need to see Michigan go up against Georgia before we say, hey, Michigan does belong on the same field as the Bulldogs. So with all that having been said, all, all the doubts that I have about Michigan, TCU's season, and it's an, it's an extraordinary achievement for the Horn Frogs to be here because absolutely no one expected them to be here. But TCU had a remarkable run of fortune. And that doesn't diminish the accomplishment because, again, no one expected TCU to be here. It's absolutely tremendous. Max Duggan finishes second in the Heisman Trophy race. Uh, Sonny Dykes, coach of the year, and it's all really deserved. Garrett Riley, the offensive coordinator, younger brother of Lincoln Riley, won the Broyles Award, also fully deserved that. So a really special year for TCU, and especially for TCU fans, you know, after getting snubbed in the first playoff in 2014, eight years ago, you know, who, who, who thought or who knew that TCU would get another chance to make the playoff this soon? Uh, you know, who thought that TCU would actually was actually going to be able to get across the threshold and make the playoff after you know not getting in in 2014, 
uh, when it has such a good team under uh, Trevon Boykin and all the rest under coach Gary Patterson. So an amazing season for TCU, but TCU was down 17 to Oklahoma state, uh, was able to win in overtime, was down 18 to Kansas state in the middle of the regular season. You know, that was the first Kansas state game. The rematch was in the big 12 title game, which of course TCU lost, but TCU trailed by 18 to Kansas state in the middle of the season in the first matchup. And then Kansas state's quarterback goes down by to injury and TCU had several opponents, Oklahoma as well. Dylan Gabriel got injured against TCU, uh, got knocked out of the game. TCU had several opposing quarterbacks get injured in the game that they were playing. It was just the darndest thing I've ever seen. And uh, TCU was down by eight to Baylor late and, you know, scrambled back to tie or not to tie, but to get close and then win on the final play of the game, uh, you know, a fire drill field goal without having uh, any timeouts left. So really, this has been a remarkable run for TCU. It's been a joyride, but it's also really defied the odds uh, just in terms of, you know, the crazy comebacks, uh, you know, all the fourth quarter scramble situations that this team has been through. So while I'm not fully sold on Michigan, and while I think TCU has a definite chance to win this game, like I I would say Georgia has like a a 90% chance of beating Ohio State. I would say Michigan has like a 60% chance uh, of beating TCU. Um, while I, I, while I, I'm not, you know, fully sold on Michigan, I do think, you know, TCU has a very realistic chance of winning this game. You know, do you give TCU a month off and, you, and TCU is going to be gearing up for this moment. And Max Duggan is a guy who can, you know, break away from Miss- Michigan's pass rush and make plays out of the pocket. Uh, I think, you know, whereas Ohio State has just one path to victory uh, against Georgia. I think TCU has multiple paths. Like I think I can see TCU's defense containing JJ McCarthy and the Michigan passing game. And I can see TC I can see Max Duggan having a big game and I can see TCU's receivers uh, out doing the Michigan cornerbacks. So I think TCU has a very, very real chance of winning this game, but just the fact that TCU has been scrambling so much of the season, you know, coming from behind in the fourth quarter a lot that is not sustainable. That tells me that, you know, over the course of a four-quarter game, that Michigan can establish uh, superiority in the trenches uh, and win that Fiesta Bowl. And so that brings us to the Georgia-Michigan national title game, which I, I've kind of already addressed it, but we'll just put it very plainly, that the gap between the two teams was very large last year. It's not as big this year, but it, again, it's still very large last year. Michigan has to make up the whole gap to win, not just a part of the gap. You know, it's not just, it's just, it's not enough to reduce the gap. Michigan has to make up the full gap and that is just going to be very hard. And so Georgia going back to back, I know it's not what uh, ACC fans like to hear. Like they don't like to hear the the SEC uh, winning another, another national title, but you know, it's just really hard to see how someone other than Georgia does not lift the trophy at the end. Very good analysis, Matt. Very good analysis. Matt, open microphone time. What do you got for us? Well, in ter- you know, in terms of a, a final thought, I-, I would just say that, you know, a lot of people are looking at the 12-team college football playoff, you know, and, and so next year, 2023, is going to be the last year with the four team playoff and a lot of people throughout college football, like I know this from being on college football, Twitter, 
a lot of people think, you know what, this is not the sport I once loved. This is not, you know, why I loved college football. Uh, it's going to be so terrible. This is not the way things used to be. It's not the way things ought to be. And I understand. And, and I understand specifically the idea that, you know, oh, now we can have a year like this one where Alabama loses twice and yet is comfortably in the playoff and has a great chance to win the national title. Like that, you know, that is that is definitely the reason why a 12-team playoff is bad. Like if you're making the argument that a 12-team playoff is awful for college football, that is the argument to make right there. That a, that a team can underachieve, lose twice, doesn't do anything special, but it gets into a tournament where it can win three games and win the national title. So I get it. I understand. But, but in terms of the idea that, oh, this is a, a real death blow for college football or this really hurts the sport, it hurts the product, it makes, makes the product a lot less, here's where I have to push back against that. Here's, here's the counter argument to all of that. College football didn't need to do the BCS, did not need to use the BCS. It did not need to use the college football playoff. College football needed to do one thing uh, to, to improve its product and make the sport better. And that was to have a plus one after the bowl games. So in other words, you keep the 1980s classic old style bowl system, but you play one game for the national title after the bowls, if the if college football had done that, our sport would be in such a better place than it is now. And so the 12-team playoff is not the downfall of college football. The downfall of college football has already happened. It happened with the BCS. You know, it happened with having a system where you don't get to see USC and Auburn play in the 2004 season or USC and LSU in 2003, you don't get to see, uh, you know, you didn't get to see Miami play Oregon in 2001. You, you, there were so many matchups like Oklahoma state didn't get to play LSU in 2011. You had the LSU Alabama rematch, which was a total snoozer. The BCS was supposed to fix college football and it completely failed. And a lot of people think that the BCS was actually great because you had just two teams instead of four. So like you always had deserving teams fighting it out for the national title. And now if 12, you're watering it down and it's so much worse. But let's remind ourselves, the BCS, this was a 16-year run, 1998 through 2013. Only three times did the BCS work exactly as it was intended. And the BCS was great if you had a clear number one, and a clear number two, and there was no doubt, there was no question about who, which two teams deserved to play for the national title. So, 1999, you had Virginia Tech, Florida State, clear top two teams. 2002, Ohio State versus Miami, clear top two teams, you know, zero debate. Everyone else was, you know, lo lower on, on, on the in the pecking order. And then 2005, USC, Texas, obviously the two best teams. Put them on the field, great. So when the when when they had just two and only two teams, and there was zero debate about number three, zero debate about number four, then it's great. But that was only three times in sixteen years, and so you know while the BCS you know could have resolved, let's say you know like Miami versus Washington, nineteen ninety one, or Colorado Georgia Tech, nineteen ninety, some of the other debates we've had throughout the years. Having an old the old bowl system and then a plus one would have done all of that without 
having the negative effects of the BCS. And what are the negative effects of the BCS in addition to not always getting it right? In fact, not getting it right most of the time. What the BCS also did was, you know, before the BCS, you still had the Rose Bowl for the Big Ten and the, and the Pac-10 every time. So you never had a year in which uh, a team uh, could, could go to a bowl other than that from those two conferences. Like if you were the champion, you, if you were the champion, you went to your bowl game. Like you, if you were the Pac-10 champion, you went to the Rose Bowl before the BCS. If you were the SEC champion, you always went to the Sugar. If you were the Big 8 champion, uh, you always went to the orange. Uh, you know, if if you were the the Big Ten champion, you always went to the rose. If you were the you know in the old Southwest Conference, if you were the champion there, you went to the Cotton Bowl. So the BCS made it so that you know because of the rotating bowl system. Oh well, you could go to the Rose Bowl and it could be a disappointment. Like if the if the BCS national championship game was in New Orleans. And you're sitting there in the Pac-10 or the Big Ten, and you're playing in the Rose Bowl. Well, you're not in the national title game, so your season was a disappointment. That began the era of, you know, not playing in your treasured bowl game. Oh, that's fine. And actually playing in your treasured bowl game in your region of the country, that's a that's a consolation prize. Like we saw this with Ohio State last year. Going to the Rose Bowl was a disappointment for the Buckeyes because they weren't in the playoff. They weren't in the national championship uh, competition going into the postseason. Like the Rose Bowl was just another game for them. Let's remember that the BCS, not the playoff, the BCS really started that new era in college football. And let's let's remember how different it used to be before the BCS came into being. And the example I always mention when I talk about uh, you know the, the health and the quality of the product of college football, especially in bowl season, the, the example I always use when I talk to other people about this is 1983. All right. So New Year's Day, 1983, or technically it was January 2nd because it was a Monday. You know, they play the NFL on Sunday when it's uh, January 1st. Um, so the games were on Monday, January 2nd, 1984. 80, 1983 season, January 2nd, 1984. These were the big New Year's Day bowl games. So you had number one, Nebraska, against number five, Miami, in the Orange Bowl. You had number two, Texas, against number seven, Georgia, in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, Texas was the Southwest Conference champion. Georgia was the SEC runner-up. Sugar Bowl, you had SEC champion Auburn, number three, uh, against number eight, Michigan. And in the Rose Bowl, you had number four, Illinois, against UCLA. So let's just kind of look look at that uh, quartet of matchups and realize that you had Seven top teams in the country, uh, seven of the top eight, playing in those four traditional January bowl games, Rose, Orange, Sugar, uh, Cotton, the, the, you know, the, the four classic bowl games uh, in January 1984. So, you know, if uh, let's, let's, you know, so Nebraska did lose to Miami and Miami was number five. So that obviously threw the national title picture uh, into a very confused state. And, you know, Auburn wound up beating Michigan uh, in the Sugar. Um, but, uh, you know, number four, Illinois lost in the Rose Bowl to UCLA. And you also had number two, Texas, losing to number seven, Georgia. So let's stop ourselves and realize, what if Auburn, number three, Auburn, had lost to number eight, Michigan, uh, in, in the Sugar Bowl? You could have made an argument 
it might not have been the uh, clear cut argument, but you could have at least made the case that number seven, Georgia, you know, by beating number two, Texas should have been ranked number two, uh, right behind number one, Miami, uh, you know, maybe Georgia instead of Nebraska, uh, should have been number two behind Miami, or maybe even Georgia should have been number one, uh, ahead of Miami. Uh, because, you know, Miami played a home game against Nebraska. Georgia basically had to play a road game in Dallas against Texas. So the larger point of all that is that you had seven teams, seven different teams, who began January 2nd, 1984, thinking, okay, if this combination of bowl results unfolds, we have a claim to being the national champion. We, we, we at least have an argument to being the national champion. So what does that mean? It means that if on, on January 2nd, 1984, seven different fan bases across the country were part of the national championship conversation. So seven is bigger than four. And so what we've had under the BCS was two teams being in the national title conversation heading into the bowl games. Uh, and then in the college football playoff, you have four fan bases, four teams that are part of the national championship conversation heading into the bowl season. So isn't it better for college football? Isn't it better for the product? Isn't it better for the sport if you have six or seven different schools and fan bases all thinking they have a shot at the national title going into New Year's Day, going into January 2nd? Like that, that seems like a no brainer. So like it was it was all better. It was better with the old 1980s bowl system with the obvious point that you just have to add one more game after the bowls. So in 1983, like you've already played Miami Nebraska. So that 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 was a bowl matchup. After the bowls, the way things went with Auburn number 3 Auburn beating Michigan in the Sugar Bowl Miami-Auburn would have been the plus one. Now, Georgia would have had a, a case, but Auburn did beat Georgia that year in Georgia, in Athens, uh, to win the SEC. So really, it was pretty clear that after all the Bulls, you have Miami versus Auburn uh, in a one-game national title fight. And that would have been tremendous. And But you still would have kept the integrity of the Bowl system where you know USC going to the Rose Bowl – like that's always your pipeline. That's always the game you want to play in. So playing the Rose Bowl is never a disappointment. Now it's not an automatic playoff game. It's not like an automatic semifinal. If other things happen in the Cotton Bowl or the Sugar Bowl or the Orange Bowl, you don't necessarily get to play in that plus one, but you have a shot. You have a chance. So that, that way you keep all of the New Year's Day Bowl games relevant. Sugar, the Sugar Bowl mattered. In 1983, the Orange Bowl mattered in 1983. The Rose Bowl mattered in 1983. Cotton Bowl mattered in that 1983 season. So if you have more of your elite bowl games mattering, counting as part of the national championship chase, well, that means they're going to get bigger TV ratings. And that means you're going to have more people from more cities, more states across the country watching each of the different January games. But this year... It's all about, and in any year with the playoff, it's all about just those two playoff semifinals. And you're probably not going to get huge ratings for the Cotton Bowl, and you're not going to get huge ratings for the Rose Bowl. You know, those are just looked upon as secondary other games. You know, just they're just extra games. They're not special games. They're just other games. Uh, and, and so that 
is detracting from the quality of college football. That is detracting from the tradition of the sport. That is really, you know, taking away from the magic of it. So for people who think that the 12-team playoff is this big, crucial, awful, horrendous step backward for college football, I'm here to make the argument the, the big step backwards started with the BCS in 1998. We didn't have to do it, but that's the way the sport went. And all of this could have been avoided by simply having maintaining the 1980s classic bowl system, and then you evaluate the teams, and then you have a plus one two weeks after uh, New Year's Day. You would solve you know, the, the familiar problems from past decades. You know, I mentioned Colorado and Georgia Tech, Miami and Washington, obviously things that you know, ACC fans would, would care about you know, and the other great uh, unresolved debates o- over the years in college football, the, uh, the old bowl system with a plus one would take care of that, it would, but it would also I- include and keep more fan bases involved in the sport for the big New Year's Day bowl games. Seven schools you know, in the mix instead of four, seven cities watching you know, TV uh, bowl games in big numbers instead of you know three or four, that would be better for the sport. But the sport did not choose that route uh, in the 1990s. So if you're, if you're thinking that college football is now going to be worse, no, it became worse w- when the move to the BCS happened. And as bad as it will be, and it's going to happen, you know, it will happen one, at least once or twice that Alabama loses twice but gets into the playoff, wins three games, wins the national title. Yeah, that's going to suck. That's going to be bad. That's going to be awful. There's, I'm not going to argue against that. But the trade-off is, you know, Tulane would be in the playoff this year if we had a 12-team playoff. So Tulane gets a chance. And other teams that wouldn't ordinarily get a chance, they will be in it. And you're going to have more schools, more markets, more communities invested in more bowl games. That is good. That is an undeniable positive. So I I know that the Alabama two-loss argument, it it matters and it shouldn't be denied, and I'm not denying it. But there are so many other really good things that are going to come from this. You're going to have so many more schools invested in their bowl game. You're going to have so many more communities really excited about college football in mid to late December uh, you're going to have so many more games capturing national TV interest and generating a lot of buzz. Like December is going to be such a better college football month as a result of the 12 team playoff when we get it two years from now. So, yeah, the Alabama two loss thing, it's a big deal and I'm not minimizing it, but you have a lot of good things on the other side of the column that you haven't had uh, for a long time. And that's coming back with with more fan bases being interested in the sport. The product is not going to suffer as a result of the 12-team playoff. Outstanding analysis, Matt. Great analysis. Jeff, you're up, friend. All right. I'll just be quick. Don't look now. But here come the North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh Preseason number one ranked college basketball team, fastest to fall out of the rankings after an, a really uh, uneven start. Uh, lost to Iowa State, Alabama, Indiana, uh, Virginia Tech, and absolutely critical game for them this weekend 
uh, playing a good Ohio State game or good Ohio State team. 1.2 seconds from losing that game, they hit a last second shot to tie that game, win in overtime. It was just the kind of win that they needed. They've been talented. They are talented, and we've seen that. You know, they took you know multiple overtime games against Alabama. We know the talent is there, but something had been off. But they come back from 14 down against Ohio State. I, I think the Hard Hills are about to turn the corner. And I'm not saying they're the number one team in the country. Um, but I don't think they're a team you're going to want to see the next three months of the season. Because that's the kind of win that can really build some momentum, uh, you know, for a program. So I, I see them right there with, with Virginia Tech, Virginia, Duke, and Miami. You know, the five locks in the ACC for, for the NCAA tournament, I, th- I think North Carolina is going to be just fine um, going forward. Uh, we'll see who comes from the from the back of the pack to join them. I think a couple teams will, but um, I, I think you'll look back in a couple months and say this is where North Carolina turned turn the corner. Well said, Jeff. Go ahead, Matt. No, I mean, hopefully, hopefully this is the game that unlocks everything and enables the light to go back on for this team. Like, you know, we we saw them do it last March, so there's no reason they can't do it again. And this is a veteran group. It's been mystifying, frankly, to not see it all come together. So maybe this win really just reignites. And I'll just be very brief on my open microphone, and I'll ask you, Jeff and Matt, I, you guys have watched, watched. I've been so busy with graduate studies. I haven't had a chance to check out all the college basketball teams yet this year. But I do know that Virginia Tech plays Boston College on Wednesday night next week. And I know that Virginia Tech is 0-3 in the Mike Young era against Boston College. And there's something weird about going up to Conte Forum. Whenever you go, it's an early ACC road trip for Virginia Tech. And sometimes bad things happen. Bad things happen there. And for me to see, for the Hokies to see some growth under Mike Young, they're going to have to go up there. They're going to have to win at Boston College, and that's something that they, like I said, they haven't done in the Mike Young era. And it's something that NCAA tournament teams do that want to make advances. You go up there and beat the teams that you're supposed to beat in an environment that really isn't going to have a whole lot of motivation. And when I say motivation, that crowd's going to be, it's going to be pretty empty up there because the students are going to be on break. That's the first thing. And they're, they're just, I think they're maybe going to have a 30% crowd there or something like that. I looked at the seat map. It's going to be pretty quiet at Conte Forum and the players are going to have to create their own their own motivation. Now, Jeff, you've watched Boston College and Matt, you may have watched Boston College even a little more than me this year. They don't look that good on paper, but they haven't on the last several trips that Virginia Tech has gone up there either. And so, Matt, I'll ask you first, do you think Virginia Tech's going to win on Wednesday next week at Boston College? Yes. I think that, uh, there, there, there's just too much quality on, on Virginia Tech's roster uh, to, to let this opportunity slip away. And you know that Mike Young is going to remind his players about, you know, the nightmares that have uh, occurred in Chestnut Hill in, in recent seasons. So, you know, for a team which, you know, had the great ACC tournament run that it had, I mean, you, 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 would, you would think that they're like, there's going to be a, uh, a sharper champion-like mentality 
which is going to, you know, handle these kinds of ACC business trips for the games that you really have to win and the games that you're expected to win, but away from home in uncomfortable settings. Like, you know, the, we, hey, we, we, you know, we've been through the rigors of the ACC. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've met some challenges late last season. Like, we, we should be able to handle this challenge now. Like, we should be ready this year. We weren't ready last year. We should be ready this year. So I, I, I definitely think Virginia Tech gets it done because, you know, Boston College has lost to, what, New Hampshire? Some other, you know, really, you know, lower tier teams at home. Like you, you got to get this game if you're Virginia Tech, and and I think Virginia Tech, you know, based on what it did last March at tournament time, I think Virginia Tech deserves, uh, ha, you know, not only deserves but has earned the benefit of the doubt in this game. Yeah, you'll be fine, Matthew. Boston College is terrible. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Let's close the uh, close the podcast out there, Matt. Thank you so much for being a great supporter of the All Sports Discussion ACC podcast and the AllSportsDiscussion.com website. We have enjoyed our relationship throughout the several years, throughout several years, and it's always great when you come on the beginning of the season in August and close the year with us in December. And we'd love to have you come back on the show anytime. Thanks so much for your support, Matt. I'm already looking forward to the late August podcast uh, in 2023. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year, guys. Take care. Merry Christmas. Thank you, guys. Take care, guys.